Let's find Matthew 25. We continue in our discussion of the Olivet Parables. Once we get out of these, we'll return to Mark. And, uh, and Lord willing, we hope to be done with the Gospel of Mark somewhere in the summer. And then we'll move on to something new. I want to remind you of some things very quickly while you're turning. Hermeneutics is the science and the art of understanding, translating, and explaining the meaning of the Scripture text. Christians, good hermeneutics is not your pastor's job. It's all of our jobs. All of us should be willing to learn how to rightly divide the word of truth. Remember, good churches study the Bible corporately, but great churches study the Bible individually. And uh, so, Lord, help us with that. Remember some things that we're trying to do through this. We want to, when we study the Bible, and particularly parables, we want to make sure that we distinguish between interpretation and application. Interpretation is what the passage was saying to its audience in its day. There's only one of those. But application is what the message, what message the passage has for us to apply today. There could be many. Secure your proper context. Read before and after the passage. Make sure you take into account historical, grammatical, and literary information. When at all possible, look for a plain and obvious meaning. Don't make it deep if it doesn't have to be. Determine your audience. To whom a passage of Scripture is written is of huge importance. And then compare Scripture with Scripture. Compare Scripture with Scripture. And finally, define your terms. We're dealing with parables, a story made up of the familiar meant to teach a moral lesson or spiritual truth that would otherwise be beyond one's understanding, often simplified as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Another thing about parables that's, that's very interesting to me is I'm of the belief that, that Jesus also used parables for those that he knew would not believe. You see, when they, when they go to their, to their destruction the level of their torment will be determined by the amount of truth they rejected. In using parables with people that he knew would not, would not believe, he was actually lessening the truth for which they were responsible. It was a merciful thing. It'd still go to hell, but they wouldn't face the punishment as severe as if they had all of this truth to reject. Jesus was being compassionate even in their rejection of him. That's how our God works. What a wonderful thing. So now tonight we, uh, we look at the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 1. Oh, that's not right. I forgot to change the reference. Verse number 14. Verse 13 for context. Watch therefore. For you know not neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several or individual ability, and he straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth, and lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. 
Verse 27, we don't get into it in the passage, in the, in the study, but he's saying the least you could have done, done was put it in the bank. The very least you could have done was put it in the bank. And then you would at least draw in some interest on it. Okay. Um, verse 28, take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father, would you help us tonight as we look to this passage? May we, um, may we glean from it exactly what we need. Lord, I feel a, a greater than normal need to get to rightly divide your word of truth. I, I, this passage intimidates me a little bit. And I want to make sure I get it right. And so, Lord, if there's anything I'm going to say tonight, though my intentions, I believe, are good. If there's anything I'm going to say tonight that doesn't rightly divide your word of truth, and stop me, I pray. And, Lord, guide me to where I should be. I've, I've worked on this message, Lord, and I don't believe it's a matter of laziness. I just think that I could easily misspeak or not handle this well. And I really want your help tonight, Lord, as I always do. So, Lord, would you please speak to us and have us hear what we need to hear from you, through your spirit, from your word. And I'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. The talents, let's begin with our first question we're we're using. To whom is Jesus speaking? Well, uh, verse number 14, that word for is a connector. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not what the day nor the hour where the Son of Man cometh for the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country. This directly connects this parable to the parable before it, the parable of the ten virgins. As such, the audience remains the same. Who was the audience of the parable of the ten virgins? Well, those four disciples specifically, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, but more broadly the Jews, a Jewish audience. And while there are some applications to the church We should not see this as what's called parenthetical. It's been taught, and I'm sorry to tell you that I've taught it this way before, that that within these parables, Jesus jumps back and forth from a Jewish audience to the church and then back to the Jewish audience. Um, While I do believe there's application to the church here, I see no reason to depart from the Jewish audience. There's nothing that changes that dynamic. And so I am sorry that there have been a couple of times that maybe I have taught from that perspective, I have since rethought that. You understand that as you study the Bible and as you learn, sometimes that changes the way you see things. If you can study the Bible for 30, 40 years and come out with the same things that you believe to start off with, something's not right. Now, I'm not talking about the fundamentals of the faith. I hope you don't come out thinking there's something other than salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're not talking about those kind of things. But some of the things that I I believed growing up, I've come to understand, you know what, that was a misunderstanding of that passage. And if you study the Bible with any intent at all, you're going to find that sometimes you're wrong about some things. It happens. I know we don't like this word because of how it's usually used, but there's an evolution to understanding. There's a, it's, we, we should be getting better, shouldn't we? We should be. If the parable of the ten virgins speaks of post-church events, and it does, I believe, and if the parable of the sheep and goat speaks of post-church events, and I believe it does, then would it not make sense for the parable in between to also speak about post-church events as opposed to shifting back to the church age. I do believe that it speaks of post-church events. Okay. So to whom is Jesus speaking? He's speaking to Jews. Doesn't mean there's nothing there for us. Because remember, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is what? Profitable. All of it is. There's something for us everywhere. Okay, but maybe not an interpretation, but certainly application. All right, so number two, what is the primary subject? What is the primary subject? I believe just as with the parable of the ten virgins, the primary subject remains the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven. Oh, preacher got you there, though. In my Bible, the kingdom of heaven is italicized, which means it wasn't in the original text. That's correct. 
but it's implied and it's connected to the first and the subject hasn't changed. The kingdom of heaven is still the main subject, the primary subject of this parable. Now, there is a different perspective added on. There's a transition from the parable of the ten virgins to the parable of the talents. What's the different perspective? The parable of the ten virgins was all about watching. The parable of the talents is all about working. The parable of the ten virgins is all about looking. The parable of the talents is all about how you're living. See, there's a slight shift here. John MacArthur said something interesting. He said those possessing a saving faith, like the five wise virgins, are going to manifest a serving faith. And I believe that. There's going to be a serving faith there. Can I remind you some things to remember about the kingdom of heaven? We're not looking to get into this deep discussion of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. Just remember this. It's not just heaven, and it's not the church. The kingdom of heaven has three elements. It has a literal ruler. It has a literal realm, and it has literal residence. Okay? If these elements are true, and we know it's not heaven, we know it's not the church, then the only thing left, I believe, is the millennial reign of Christ on earth. Remember, the kingdom of heaven just means the kingdom that belongs to heaven or the kingdom that comes from heaven. It doesn't have to mean the kingdom that is heaven. Okay? So Jesus is likening the characters of this parable to something that takes place during or close to his millennial reign. All right, let's move on from that. What are the significant personalities or terms in this passage? Let's begin with the personalities. There's only two sets. Number one is the Lord. Who, is, who does this Lord, this, this, this man traveling into a far country, who does he represent? I can't see that he represents anybody other than Jesus Christ. Now, why do I think that? Number one, this, this man just demonstrated complete sovereignty. You know anybody else that has complete sovereignty? I don't. This man displayed limitless wealth. Do you know anybody else that has limitless wealth? This man was gone for an indeterminate amount of time. Do we know anybody who's been gone from this earth for an indeterminate amount of time? And he wielded full, full authority over the lives of the servants, their rewards, their punishments, and where they lived and so forth. Anybody else you know that has that kind of autonomy over you? I believe the Lord to represent Jesus Christ. But then who are the servants? Who are the servants? Well, given the subject, the millennial kingdom, and the audience, the Jews, it seems that these servants represent saved Jews, Jews that are heading into the millennial kingdom. Now, now, let's pause here for a second. These, these are passages that it's very easy for people to see things differently. The absolute worst thing that I can be guilty of tonight is teaching faulty doctrine. Now, I don't teach false doctrine, but faulty doctrine. What's that mean? We can disagree on this and still love the Lord and still move forward for him. And I would suspect, and there's, a many, there's enough people in here tonight, that there's going to be different perspectives on this. Okay. All I ask is this, is that your perspective be one that submits to the Holy Ghost and his word. And not just because this is what Jay Vernon said or Jay Mack or whoever your favorite commentary is. Okay. Well, Dr. Stanley said I'm, he may have. Well, Dr. Hen said, you better not be listening to Dr. Hen. <laughs> Precious people. Anyway, um, there are applications to the church here, but I do not see a direct address to pre-rapture saints. Now, let's talk about these three servants. A, B, or C. A, they represent saved people or believers. B, they represent unbelievers. C, they represent both. Let me say A. Let me say B. Okay, this problem here. Everybody says C? Man. Okay, fine. Leave me up here by myself then. There's many that would argue that the third servant... Is a, is, is, is a false believer, a false professor. I don't believe so. I believe all three of them would represent saved individuals. Now let's get into this. 
Brother Earl saying, yep, so I'm okay so far. I can't wait to get out of prophetic things. I really can't. All right. Verse 14. The kingdom of heaven is as a man. Who's the man? Come on, help me, y'all. Who's the man? Lord Jesus, right? Okay. The kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants. Servants. Plural. To whom do they belong? Jesus. If you're not saved, do you belong to Jesus? No. He said, I never knew you. Okay. Another reason. He says in verse 26 that this third servant is slothful. Can you be saved and be slothful? Yes. Verse 30. He calls him unprofitable. Can you be saved and be unprofitable? Yes. Oh, wait a minute now. That's all fine, Andy, but now we got you. Verse 26, it calls him wicked. Can you be saved and be wicked? Yes. Especially when you consider some of the uses of the word wicked. For instance, in some places in the Bible, the word for wicked, paneros, means hurtful or derelict. Can a Christian be hurtful? Can a Christian be derelict in their duty? Yeah. <laughs> okay. But outer darkness. Mm. We'll get into this a little bit later when we get into our terms. But it's my belief that outer darkness does not necessarily mean hell. It doesn't have to mean hell. Okay? So I believe that the Lord is a representative of Jesus Christ. The servants are three people who are believers. Okay? Jewish believers. Now let's get into our terms. Remember, we want to define our terms. First of all, let's talk about a talent. A talent. Now literally, what was a talent? A talent was a measurement of weight that was used to measure currency. Okay? Talents are usually somewhere between 50, 58 and 80 pounds. It was said that it was as much as a man could carry. Now, admittedly, I can carry more than 80 pounds. Not for long, but I can. So it's got to mean something along the lines of a, a normal burden that somebody could carry for an extended amount of time, which would fall in between that 58 and 80 pounds. Like my briefcase. My briefcase is about 58 pounds, if you've ever tried to carry it. My daughter's book bag for school is about 112 pounds. Now, a talent of silver, and let's, let's go minimum, 58 pounds. In those days... By their currency, by their reckoning, a talent of silver would be worth about $2,000. Now, that's 2,000 years ago. $2,000 worth more now than it was then, or more, worth more then than it was now, rather. You got $2,000 back then, you do, you're living in high cotton. You know, A talent of gold, at its minimum, back in those days be worth about $30,000. Now, even if people disagree, and people do, different commentators, different students of the Bible have different measurements and weights, this is a conservative estimate. Can we agree? We're talking about a lot of money. So this first servant that was given 10 talents, minimum, I'm sorry, five rather, minimum, $10,000 worth of silver or $150,000 worth of gold. He's not dealing with walking money here. He's not dealing with pocket change. He's dealing with a lot of money. That's literally what a talent was. But figuratively, what, what is Jesus trying to get across figuratively? 
It was evident that this Lord had an expectation that the talents be invested. Why do we think that? Why do we feel that they would know that? Because look at what it says in Matthew 25, 15. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several or individual ability, and straightway took his journey. If there's not some expectation of doing something with it, then why does ability matter? If somebody hands me $150,000 and asks me to take it to the bank, just about everybody I know is capable of doing that. Maybe not willing, but capable. That's not an ability thing. That's an obedience thing. He's talking about their ability. This guy who got the five talents, good with money. Really good. The one with two, pretty good, but not as adept. The one who got one, bless his heart. I like him. Want to give him a chance, but he's not as good as the other two. It was all about their ability. So this is about this is about a uh, an investment, okay. So the talent in this parable, regardless of the audience, if we're talking Jews, if we're talking the church, whoever, it's evident that it represents that which the Lord has entrusted to the stewardship of another, expecting that it be used for God's glory. The talent is reckoned to be an ability or an opportunity that God has entrusted to his people intending that it be used for him, multiplied to bring glory to him, and he will reckon on it when he comes back. Can we, can we agree on that? Okay. Next term. Hard. Verse number 24. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man. Why is that an important term? Because it's, it's, it's going to play an important role. The word hard means fierce, harsh, or stern. Fierce, harsh, or stern. So what he's saying is, I did this because you're harsh, you're stern, you're fierce. You don't forgive. You're unforgiving. Now, here's the one we're going to have some fun with, outer darkness. What is outer darkness? There are times that this can mean hell, but this term is not always obliged to mean that. It is a matter of context. In this particular case, now remember, I've given you three or four reasons why I believe that these, all three of these servants represent believers. Do believers get cast into hell? No. Well, maybe he forfeited his salvation. Okay, I'll go along with that if you can show me anywhere in the Bible that teaches that you can forfeit your salvation. It's not there. It's not there. In this case, it seems the key is the idea of the servant being separated from the inner circle. Let's read verse 30. Let's read it slowly and deliberately. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's read it again. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As I read that, just because he is in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, it does not mean that he will be the one experiencing it. For instance, if I make a hospital visit, there shall be pain and difficulty and all that goes with being in the hospital. But does that mean I'm the one experiencing it? No. Up to this point, the most pain that I've experienced at Roanoke Memorial Hospital is finding a parking space. They need to fix that. 
They're steady building that hospital, but they're not building more parking. Somebody needs to talk to these people. And let me say something else. Double parking in a hospital parking deck ought to be a capital offense. Or at the very least, ought to be able to key their car with no repercussions. (laughs) Capital offense may be a bit much. But when you're trying to be somebody, be there for somebody that's about to have surgery and you can't find a space, it's, it's irritating. It seems to me that for this man, outer darkness is being away from a place of service in the kingdom. Instead, he is in the presence of those who are excluded forever from the king. He's not in hell, but he can see over. That'll make more sense later. There's nothing in the text to suggest that this punishment will last indefinitely. Do you see anything in that verse or any other verse there that says that he would be there eternally? I don't. You see, if outer darkness means hell then I've got a whole bunch of parables that I can't explain. This is the only interpretation for me that fits. All right, so we've, we've done all our academic work. And I know this could be boring as all get out, but you're going to find that as you study the Bible and this stuff starts kicking into your memory, it's going to help you. Oh, what are my terms? What's the, what's the most... What's, what's the most reasonable, the plain understanding of this? Who's the audience? These things will start kicking in. Okay. So what's the narrative of this passage? An influential, wealthy, and powerful master is going on a trip for an unspecified amount of time. In his absence, he has instructed his servants to take those talents, which he has left for them, invest them, and present them to him upon his return, having multiplied said talents. Each servant has been given an amount to steward that is within his ability. The first servant has been entrusted with five talents, the second two, and the third one. The master has gone for a long time, but finally returns without warning. The first servant reveals that he has invested the talents and doubled them from five to ten. The master is pleased. And commends him, giving him more responsibility. He does the same for the second servant, who has also doubled his investment from two, I'm sorry, from, uh, yeah, from two to four. The third servant reveals that in a mixture of fear and laziness, he hid the talent in the ground. Now, this was not an unusual method of safekeeping valuables back then. They didn't have safe deposit boxes. They didn't have banks like we understand. And so if you wanted to protect your valuables, a lot of times you would go find a nice spot and bury it in the ground, and you were the only one that knew where it was. This was not unusual. But it fell short of the master's instructions to invest and multiply that which was given to his keeping. The servant then misrepresents the master calling him hard, fierce, harsh, and stern. Why do I say that? Why do I say he misrepresented him? Let's read. Verse number uh, 24. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee, that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, gathering where thou hast not strawed. Verse 26. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. He, he agrees with two of those assessments. What's he leave out? The part about him being hard. What's he saying? I'm not hard. I'm not mean. I'm not stern and fierce and harsh like you've represented me. But if that's how you want to see it, then okay, I will adopt your assessment. And so he calls him slothful and wicked and unprofitable. He then takes the single talent from him and gives it to the more responsible first servant. And he banishes the servant to outer darkness for an unspecified amount of time. 
The other two servants are given places of authority in the master's realm. Does that sound like that about covers the narrative of the passage? I think so. So now, what's the proper interpretation of the passage? What is Jesus saying to his audience at that time? Seems to me that Jesus is warning his Jewish audience about their willingness to receive the truth about him and then to serve him accordingly. Looking forward to the time of tribulation, those Jews who trust him as their Messiah and Savior have been given a responsibility to steward this truth in service to him until he establishes his kingdom. More broadly, it's a general instruction to all believers to be stewards of that with which he has blessed us and that there will be reward commensurate with our level of service. That's what I believe to be the interpretation of this parable. But admittedly, I want to spend the most time with what I have left on the application. This is like one big so what. Okay, we've gone through all that, got the proper interpretation. What am I, a Christian in 2023, what should I take from this? Okay, so what's our application of this passage? Can I give you a few things to think about? Number one. The only real metric of service is faithfulness. Now, I have said that a hundred times from behind the pulpit. I know it to be true, but it is so difficult to live it. Because as humans, we are wired in our nature to want to produce results and to outdo that guy and to overrun that person And so we see these guys that we went to college with and their churches are busting out the seams and they're building new buildings and had 30 people saved on visitation today and you're just like, come on, man. And you want to be happy. You should be happy for that. But in your heart of hearts, you're saying, what am I doing wrong? And yet, the only real metric for any of us. It's not how many people we won to the Lord today. Not how many times we, we managed to, to get somebody to take one of our tracks. Not how many services in a row we've taken perfect sermon notes. No, the only metric that God uses for us is whether or not we were faithful or unfaithful. That's it. That's it. Every one of these servants had different abilities and thus different expectations. God didn't expect the two the two talent servant to produce 10 servants, 10 talents. He didn't expect that of him because that wasn't within what he gave him to do. And the reality of it is God doesn't expect this ministry to be 4000 people. All he expects us to do is be faithful. Now, if God changes the dynamic and decides that 4,000 people are going to converge upon 1705 Peppers Ferry Road, then great, let's build a building. But until then, the only metric is that we be faithful. Really, at the end of this whole thing, what do you think is the one thing that my wife is going to hope for, for, for our marriage is that I was faithful? She's not going to care whether or not I brought home all kinds of money or bought her a new car every couple of years, or put her in a new house every so often, or, you know, what? No, was I faithful? And what does God want of us? That we be faithful. It's not a matter of portion. It's a matter of proportion. It's not a matter of how much you bring to God. It's a matter of how much of you he has. May God help us to understand that simple and yet Hard to grasp truth that the only metric of service is faithfulness. Because what does he say? Well done, thou good and productive servant. No. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I believe with all of my heart that the master was as excited and proud of the two-talent guy as he was the five-talent guy and would have been of the one-talent guy. Something else to consider. 
God rewards differently than man does. There are degrees of reward, and they are based on faithfulness, not production. I mean, really, in in most business situations, incentives are, are, are really usually built around what? Production. If you're in a secular environment, your boss cares not as much about how faithful you are to the company. It's how much do you produce for the company. That's the normal way man thinks. That is not how God thinks. The thing is, God's the one that takes care of the production. Do you know how much I've produced since I've pastored this church in 12 years, how much I've produced? Nothing. Nothing? Yeah, nothing. What did Paul say? I planted, Apollos watered. But it's God that gives the increase. All we can do is till the ground. God's the one that produces. When God rewards you, it doesn't improve you. It changes you. It changes you. Look at verse 23. We, we could look at verse 21 equally. They, they say the same thing. But we'll, just, we'll use 23 to keep from, me from having to turn back and forth. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Do you see what happens here? I'm not just going to give you something. I'm going to change who you are. You're not a servant anymore. Now you're a ruler. Now you're a ruler. What did Jesus tell his disciples before he was arrested in the garden? He said, I call you not servants. Henceforth I call you what? Friends. When God rewards you, it doesn't just improve your lot. It changes you fundamentally. We're going to go from servants to rulers. Did you know that? Right now, we're his servants. Will we one day be rulers? Revelation 5.10, And it's made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Number three, God, generally, oh, I'm still talking about rewards. God's rewards are far beyond what we enjoy now. Um, if you've ever gotten some kind of reward, some kind of award, some kind of incentive-based thing at work, has anybody, has anybody ever gotten an award that you would say was really life-changing? You know? I mean, I mean let's, let's, let's think of the, all right, I want a free trip. Great! But you didn't get to move there. You had to come back. It was enjoyable. And maybe you had some life-altering moments with your kids or whatever. But I'm talking about just in general. Was it life-changing? Nah, really? Man, I'm going to tell you, my company gave me a Yeti cooler. Great! Yetis are good. It's not life-changing. My life is not markedly better if I have a Yeti. Now, I'm not saying if you're thinking of buying me a Yeti, I'm not telling you not to. I'm just saying it's not life-changing. Even a bonus or a commission or whatever else, yeah, that can really enhance your life, but does it change your life? And the answer is generally no. But when God rewards you, what an upgrade. Look at verse 23. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Let's say that that baptistry was filled. It's not currently. 
but let's say it was filled. I could walk up there and invite one of you to come up here. And I could reach my hand down in there and flick some of that water on you. And that would be, okay. I could take a cup and dip it in there and ask you to drink it. I wouldn't recommend you do. But let's say you're so parched you do it. That's, that's a little bit better. You're getting a little bit more water that way. But both of those pale in comparison to if I invite you to jump in. Now, periodically, we get a little bit of joy spread on us, don't we? And sometimes we even have joy within us because it's a fruit of the Spirit. But God ups everything. He says, I don't want you just to have joy. I want you to enter in to joy. I want you to live in joy. And by the way, I don't want you to live in your joy. I want you to live in my joy. Because look at what it says. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Would you, ex- let's just, you don't even have to be doctrinal, just use common sense. Whose joy do you think is purer and better, mine or his? Yeah, see. His reward is such an upgrade to anything that we can have. Jesus said this, John fifteen eleven. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full, that my joy might remain in you. John seventeen thirteen. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Something else interesting about how God's rewards are different than man's. Many times... God's rewards, let me rephrase that. In this case, it seems that the reward for good work is more good work. Now, to the human, that sounds like, wait a minute, I don't like that reward. My reward for work is more work. No, the reward for good work is more good work. Look what it says. We're still in verse 23. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. You did a good job. I'll make thee ruler over many. I'm going to give you another good job. See? His reward for a job well done was a better job to be done. Now, how do, I, how do I analogize that for today? <clears throat> I love what I do. There's nothing else in the world I would rather do. Now, I have moments where I usually jokingly say, boy, I think it's time for me to sell insurance. But those are... If I'm serious at all, those are fleeting. I love what I do. And you can love what you do without loving every aspect. I love marriage. I love being married. I don't love every aspect of marriage. And that's more true for my wife than it is for me. I would like to believe, I truly hope, and I, I'm not, I, it's impossible for me to make this determination. But it's my hope and my prayer that, looking back on it, that I've done a good job pastoring. I hope so. So what is my reward if I'm a good pastor? We would think that the reward for that good job, a good job of pastoring, is a nice service where we look back on my time here and people give testimony as to how I was a blessing to them and maybe you give me a watch, wish me the best, 
We pray over the new guy, and I go to Florida and just relax with my feet in the sand for the rest of my time. Can I tell you something, friend? By my reckoning, the best way for the Lord to reward me for being a good pastor, God knows my heart that I mean this, is to let me continue being a pastor. I want to do this as long as he'll let me. I may feel better, I may feel different about that when I'm 70. But I want to do this as long as he'll let me. You've heard people say that, you know, some things are a reward in themselves. Can I tell you? What's my reward for being a good husband? Crystal's my reward. What's my reward for being a good father? Claire and Asher. I don't want to be delivered from any of that. And so God knows exactly what he's doing. If he wants to reward you for a job well done, he'll do it by giving you another job to do well, and you will find such fulfillment in it and such blessing in it. There's few people in the world more miserable than a Christian that's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Now some general observations. I didn't know what category to put these in. So some general observations. What we think of wealth often means very little to God. Those things that we think are really significant and really important, they don't really think much to God. God doesn't think much about them, does he? Look at verse, we're still in 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. That first servant, minimum, how much money is he a steward of? 150,000, right? He ends up with how much? 300,000. Minimum. Minimum. What What does the master call it? A few things. Eh. That's, that's, that's a few things. Now let's start talking about the real stuff. Why do I believe the Family Life Center will get built? I'll tell you why. Whether it's a million and a half, two million, two and a half million, three million. To God, that's a few things. Out of my reach. But it's nothing to him. It's nothing to him. So what must we do to get it? Thou hast been what? Faithful. Faithful. Strive to learn God's method of valuation. Something else, a general observation. The one-talent servant didn't use it. So what happened to him? He lost it. And that old phrase fits perfectly. Use it or lose it. If God has invested something in your life to steward and you're not using it for his glory, you will lose it. You will. And it will be given to somebody who's shown themselves more responsible. Failure to let God use you may land you in the outer darkness of being outside of God's desired role for your life and force you to look upon the weeping of those that you couldn't reach because of it. It matters to be obedient. Last thing to think about. Verse number 29. For unto everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. This is the basis for what we call the principle of added light. When you're faithful with what God gives you, he'll give you more. So if he gives somebody the light of his truth and they're faithful with it, he'll give them more. 
And the way we illustrate that is, you know, that kid sitting in the rainforest and he's looking, you know, rainforest of, you know, South America and he's looking through the, the break in the canopy and he sees the stars and he knows there's a God up there somewhere. What has he done? He has responded to the light of what we call general revelation, creation. And because he's responded to that light, God's going to give him more light. And if he'll respond to that light, then God's going to give him more light. And I believe with all of my heart, that kid keeps responding to the light God gives him. God will get a soul winner to him to give him the gospel. I believe that with all of my heart. There's not one person that goes to hell that doesn't deserve to be there. And people ask, uh, you know, well, what about that person that's ever heard the name of Jesus? If they die without him, do they go to hell? The answer is yes. But I also believe in a loving God that if there's somebody that's responding to the light that he's given them, he's going to give them more light. God's not going to owe any man anything. And when you're faithful with what God gives you, he'll give you more. He gives you opportunities and you're faithful with them. Guess what? He'll give you more. I see it all the time. Um, our church is a fairly large church for this kind of an area. Okay, um, there's a whole. My first church that I pastored, we never we had some high days, but as a as an average, we never got above seventy five. That was a big day if we had seventy five on a Sunday morning. Obviously, I don't deserve to be here, but I can tell you what would have absolutely guaranteed I never came here if I'd have not been faithful with the 75 that God gave me there. But when you're faithful with the opportunities that he gives you, he'll give you more. Here's the problem. Oh, that's true conversely as well. If, if, if you're not faithful with something, he'll take it away. If I have this extended time where I'm not faithful as a pastor here, you better believe he'll move me out of the way. People get so fired up about the pastor sometimes. That pastor's making all the wrong decisions. Okay. And God is completely able to move him out of the way when he does. He's done it many times. But you know what we tend to want to be? We want to be a reservoir. We want God to just pour into our life and pour into our life and pour into our life. And it just comes up and up and up and up and up because we misunderstand what he's talking about when he talks about our cup runneth over. That's not talking about hoarding stuff for ourselves. But we just want to be a reservoir. We're not meant to be a reservoir. We're meant to be a conduit. God doesn't want to pour into us alone. He wants to pour through us. And if we'll, if we'll be faithful and let him pour a little bit through us, you know what will happen? Before long, he'll be pouring a lot through us. God will give us $2.5 million to build the Family Life Center when we've demonstrated that we're faithful with what he's already poured through us. And I believe we do demonstrate that. I believe we have done our very best to be faithful with what he has put through this church. But I'm going to tell you something. We stop giving to missions and we stop trying to reach people in this world and stop being a conduit, we can expect God to turn the spigot off. Believe that. Well, that's that. I don't know how I expected that one to end, but it didn't end the way I expected it to. I'll leave it to the Lord. I'll leave it to the Lord.